How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to uh, an extra raspy 39th episode of X-Lapsed. I apologize if I do come across as raspy. This is like the third thing I'm recording my voice on today, so it's uh, uh, my instrument's worn out a little bit. But uh, the good news is today we've got a really good book. This is New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 5, out of March 2020, Covidate. The story's called Endangered Birds, or Endangered Boids, as I, as I might say. Written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Rod Reese. Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Beasel White, Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99 American, and went on sale January 8th, 2020. And we're back! Yeah, this, uh... I mean, this book's got Deathbird on the cover, but at least we're off the farm, right? Not that, uh... Not that we, we won't be back there next issue, but hey, we, we take any victory we can get here on this show, right? So, here we are. We're at the beginning. Does this mean that this issue will wrap up our time in Shi'ar space? Surely they won't end this issue on a cliffhanger that won't pay off until after another day at the farm, right? Right? Now let's find out. Now we open with a Bobby Drake... Bobby... Bobby Drake? No, Bobby DaCosta refresher on everything that's already gone down. Stands to reason, since our last couple of issues had nothing to do with this story. I wonder if these recaps are included in the trade collection. Like, not the anthologies, but the actual New Mutants trade, assuming that there is one, of course. Um, Now, all the new we get here is that Bobby bought the Guthrie Tot an expensive present to remain in Izzy and Sam's good graces. Uh, And we're also reminded that they're currently working for Gladiator to safely transport Deathbird back to wherever the hell they're going. We got ourselves a roll call to follow, and oh boy, it's a biggie. Let's do this. Karma, Wolfsbane, Mondo, Cypher, Mirage, Sunspot, Chamber, Magic, Smasher, Cannonball, Gladiator, Mentor, Oracle, and Deathbird. Then two pages of credits to help your humble host catch his breath. Back to comics. We're in the Shi'ar throne world here. Um, and actually, you know, before we get into it, I swear I never spell the word, the word Shi'ar the same way twice in a row. Uh, that, <laughs> that damn apostrophe has this nasty habit of hopping vowels. Uh, you know, sometimes it's S-H apostrophe I-A-R. Other times it's S-H-I apostrophe A-R. And I know that it's S-H-I apostrophe A-R that's right. But damned if I can stay consistent when I'm typing. Anyway, Gladiator's being briefed by his counsel, mentor, and oracle. Uh, you know, they... We find out here Deathbird's on her way. They've just got a couple of couple of jump things to do, and uh, shouldn't be too long before she arrives. 
Now, after filling the Magester in, Oracle sneaks away to a far-off room to give the skinny to, well, a gaggle of Shi'ar Death Commandos. You see, she wants them to kill Deathbird and anyone with her. So, yeah, looks like we got ourselves some trouble. Now, it's uh, worth noting that the Shi'ar Death Commandos look like wildly generic Marvel aliens. Like, like one of them looks like a hulked-up scroll with a metal plate on its head. So there's that. I, I guess this is the sort of trouble you run into when you make all the bad guys good guys, right? Um, this is sort of the thing I was worried about. Well, maybe not so much worried about, but maybe like bracing for when we started this X-Lapse journey all those weeks ago. And also, you know, Hickman villains are kind of generic. Uh, at least none of these have antlers, though. So At least as far as I can tell. Anyway, info page time. So let's waste a couple of pages meeting these boilerplate bad guys who we'll probably never see again. We start with Black Cloak, who's the commander, and uh, we find out he's got a spear and a containment cloak. And the latter sort of sounds like it has the power of the actual, you know, the character cloak, you know, cloak and dagger. Uh, Floor is the field leader, and this is the war scroll, and he has an ethical reason for not eating solid food. So, okay. Uh, Devo, and uh, I'd say please tell me he's got a whip, but he doesn't. He just has a force field that emits digestive fluid, so he also has trouble eating solid food, but not for ethical reasons. Hypernova is a failed Shi'ar guardian. Crate underwent, underwent surgery to become a bird of prey, and he looks like a bird. Offset is a mantis-like insectoid. Sega, now Sega, the bio for Sega is written in like gray text rather than the standard black. And we find out that Sega is a cowardly gas cloud. Shell is an orthoxolith. Orthoxolith, yeah, it's a rock alien. You know, kind of, kind of looks thingish, but you know, you know, rocky, craggy. And then we got Warshock, Warshot, an exiled Cree weapons master. So let's uh, let's parse this a little bit. Okay, we have another book in this line called X Men, and in it we have Orcus. A group comprised of members of other groups, right? We know that there's there's shield guys in there, there's aim guys in there, there's all the all the Marvel acronym teams. They they've got members in this Orcus. We also got a book called X Force, and we have Zeno, which is a group group comprised of members of other groups. Now in New Mutants, we have the Shi'ar Death Commandos, a group comprised of members of other groups. Alrighty then, back to comics. One day later. We're on board the shuttle with the New Mutants, and we get an aside with Chamber and Mondo, uh, which, you know, as a Generation X guy, I both really like this and, and sort of don't understand at the same time. Um, Chamber and Mondo, if I'm remembering right, they weren't, like, ever best pals or anything. Um, and Mondo was only with the team for, like, a cup of coffee before betraying them. Maybe this is, like, one of those any-familiar-face sorts of, sort of situations, like... Like, you remember heading into homeroom on the first day of school, and, like, you do that, like, weird visual scan of the room, trying to see, like, a single friendly face? I, mean, I was not very popular in high school. I know it sounds shocking. But uh, that's what I would do. I, anytime I'd, on the first day of school and all my classes, I would try to, like, scan. It's like, is there anybody here who who wouldn't want to, you know, shove me in a locker, you know? <laughs> is there anybody here who would uh, be able to stomach more than a minute with me? So uh, I wonder if it's that sort of a thing. Though, if that is the case, it kind of discounts the time that Jono's spent as an actual X-Man over the years. I mean, he's worked with the New Mutants contingent far more than he ever worked with Mondo. Oh, well, I'll just give it a thumbs up for being Generation X-centric, and I'll try to stop thinking about it so hard. 
Now, Mondo and Chamber, they chat about their new teammates, and Mondo really isn't sh- quite sure what to make of them. He thinks Ilyana is an animal, and he doesn't trust Doug. Speaking of Doug, we shift scenes over to a control panel where he's being admonished by Cannonball's nag of a wife for wondering aloud if he should send an access code to the upcoming Stargate. From here, we pop over to Sam and Berto, and they're having themselves a chat. Now, you see, Bobby really wants to do something, and Sam ain't convinced that it's all that great an idea. You see, he wants to go chat up the old deadly bird. Yeah, Roberto's a leg guy, and, well, Deathbird's got two of them. Smasher saunters over to suck the life and oxygen out of the scene. What a horrible character. Uh, Bobby ultimately decides that, hey, he's a good-looking dude. He's got a lot of things going for him. Ms. Bird would be lucky to talk with him. And so he makes his approach. He introduces himself, and he kind of rattles off some of his details. You know, he's rich. He's got these awesome sun-based superpowers. And she responds by saying she's not rich. She's wealthy. And I think that's a Chris Rock bit, isn't it? Uh, now, Bobby looks on the bright side, and he thanks her for not only being into him for his money, which was a pretty cute way to come back to that. Unfortunately, this conversation is cut short by the arrival of our Shi'ar Death Commandos. We join Black Cloak in his control room, where he tells the Skrull guy that he's sort of kind of changing the rules a little bit here. He, you know, he's supposed to kill Deathbird and everyone with her, but he wants Deathbird actually brought to him alive because he wants to have the honor of killing her himself. So, you know, the plan will have the same ending, just with a little bit of a, maybe, risky sort of tweak, right? Now, back to the new muse, uh, the elders, you know, not the Gen X people. Uh, they gather for a status report, and Cannonball isn't sure exactly what's happening just yet. Smasher, who just yelled at Doug for daring to think, tells him to go ahead and do whatever he wants to do with the console. So he taps in, he's able to deduce that the Shi'ar commandos are headed there to kill everyone on the ship in order to cover up their killing Deathbird. You see, now this is a cool bit. The Shi'ar are a little bit trepidatious about having another Neramani on the throne, which is really an interesting bit about Shi'ar culture and also maybe perhaps a commentary on there being like a ruling class to begin with, which is decently interesting food for thought. Now Magic declares that, hey... This ain't a fight, it's a battle. And since she is a Krakoan captain, now she's given the orders. Cannonball doesn't quite understand this whole captain deal, which is a neat bit because, hey, he doesn't live on Krakoa, he doesn't know it. Now Magic sends Danny and Rain to the docking bay to meet with the incoming boarding party, and then asks Karma to have Mondo and Chamber meet the rest of them there as well. Bobby, Smasher, and Sam are told to keep guarding over Deathbird, and then Magic soul swords away to greet the other boarding party. So I, I guess they're they're coming at him from both ends here. That's fine. One thing I want to say here before we continue is, I feel like uh, poor Danny's getting jobbed out here. You know this uh, when this book started, you know the first issue of uh, this volume of New Mutants, I thought this was going to be like Danny and uh, Sunspot's book, but. Yeah, poor Danny. She's just uh, she's just kind of a background character at this point. It's very strange. So, Karma sends a call out to arms to Mondo and Chamber, and they ignore it. They choose instead to sit back and sip their space drinks, which really gives us a uh, 1990s teens a bad look. We next pop over to Magic, who's greeting the first batch of intergalactic interlopers, and it's the Skrull guy with another two. I don't know which ones. Magic starts by propositioning all three. And this bit is weird and kind of try-hard. 
She asks them all if they'd like to make out with her. They all say no, except for the chick, naturally. Naturally, you know. Unfortunately, the girl doesn't mix work with play, so she can't do anything about it anyway. Magic says that's too bad because she's, uh, she's only there to fight or, well, the other F word. So she wants to fight or her. I tell you, I'm loving this issue so far, but this is really cringy. Um, she asks if any of these three are human, and nope, none of them are. Which means for magic, it's all systems go. She can do whatever she wants to them without worrying about breaking Krakoan law. Not to be a semantic dick or anything, but I thought the law was kill no man, not necessarily kill no human. But uh, I ain't gonna argue with magic. From here, we jump over to Karma, Mirage, and Wolfsbane, who are dealing with another bunch of commandos. Karma commands the rock beast to punch itself over and over and over again, which is pretty cute. She also commands it to say something nice, to which it compliments her on her shiny leg. Karma then has the monster KO itself, after which she does a V for Victory anime girl pose. And I'm not kidding. We pop back over to the Commando's ship, where Black Cloak, realizing that they're, lo- they're fighting a losing battle here, gives the command to just screw it blow up the ship. Bada bing, bada boom, the new mutant's craft goes kaboom. We wrap up with Mondo and Chamber floating through space, and a narration box doing a play on that whole, you're probably wondering how we're going to get out of this one. And we're out of here. So, uh, we get a cliffhanger, and next issue, we're back on the damn farm. So we gotta wait two issues to find out what happens here. Oh, boy. Uh, but next episode, we have X-Force number five, which will hopefully feel a little less X-Forced than issue number four. But first, let's talk about what we got here. And, oh, boy, I really, really, really enjoyed this one. Um, which, I mean... It makes it all the more aggravating that we're going to be headed back to the cartel and the farm story next issue. Um, I'm really loving how every non-Smasher character here is being portrayed. Um, This might be like the Dawn of X book that feels the most like home to me. And that's coming from a fellow who didn't read the original New Mutants run until like 15, 20 years after it came out. Um, This is just so well done and isn't overly reliant on the whole post-Hox-Pox trappings. This is really just a group of friends on an adventure, and it's it's all the better for it. We don't we're not talking about all the stuff going on in Krakoa outside of you know a mention of the captains. This just feels like it could be, it could be any any time. This is just a timeless sort of story, and uh, and the fact that it's a space story and I can tolerate it, really speaks to the talents of uh, of Mister Hickman, and and Mister Reese here because the art is just ridiculously beautiful. Um, now, this might be the first issue with Deathbird in it that I really enjoyed. Um, I, I, I feel like having her as a sort of aloof noble is a fun take. Um, her sadly brief uh, back-and-forth with Sunspot was also really cute. I like the idea that the Shi'ar citizens aren't completely on board with the Naramani gaining, you know, or regaining political clout. I don't remember what happened to Lalandra exactly here, but... Uh, Last I knew, I thought she was beloved by her people, right? I, I very well might be forgetting something. Um, maybe something was revealed during that, like, Ed Brubaker 400-part Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire arc. I remember not hating that, but I also remember it took, like, 25 years to tell. So I don't know that I'll be going back to that anytime soon. This is a cool bit, though. I like the bit. Uh, also, having one of Gladiator's council members be part of the rebellion, I like that, too. I thought that was pretty cool. 
Now, as for the commandos who were enlisted, I mean, they're nothing to get excited about. They're not not good, not bad. <laughs> they're really just cannon fodder that we wasted two perfectly good pages talking about. Um, I mentioned it during the synopsis, but I really want there to be actual bad guys sometime soon. Um, not just these groups within groups, especially not at this rate. Half the Dawn of X line are dealing with these similar sorts of groups now. Um, I can't see how story beats this similar can all be allowed to occur at once. Don't we have like a head of X and like a half dozen editors looking at this stuff? Unless they're all going to wind up being entangled together, which... I mean, that, that, that is a way they could go, but I kind of hope they don't. Uh, let's talk about some of our characters here. Because outside of uh, Danny being, you know, kind of jobbed out, uh, this was a, a wonderful little character piece for, uh, for, a, lot of our, uh, for a lot of our folks here. Uh, I really liked Magic taking control of the situation. Now, as a Kirkcullin captain, I appreciated her, see her seeing her take her position seriously. I wasn't quite sure what it entailed, so I'm you know, super happy to see her laying down the law. What I wasn't super happy about was to see that cringe-as-hell chat she had with the aliens, fight or the other F-word. I mean, come on, really? This feels like lazy-ass writing that is just begging to be retweeted or retumbled or whatever. And don't write for the memes, you're better than that. This, this was really try-hard stuff here. Uh, Jono and Mondo having their Gen X aside was... A little confusing, as I kind of alluded to during the synopsis. Um, I can get them sort of gravitating to one another, while at the same time, I wonder why Chamber is acting uncomfortable around the others. You know, Chamber hasn't really gone away like Mondo did. If anything, he should feel more comfortable around his, you know, his other group than Mondo himself. I mean, Mondo, he betrayed Generation X, and he's been gone longer than he's been around. I don't know, probably. <laughs> I'm definitely thinking about it too hard. Uh... I figure, like, if this was Skin or Sink, I'd, I'd see it. Because, you know, Chamber, Skin, and Sink... Or Chamber and Skin, they, they went, you know, hitchhiking together for a little bit there. I mean, they, they're they pals. Mondo and Chamber, I just don't see it. I do like them sort of putting up a wall between them and the original New Mutants. But, I mean, it still it feels, it feels a little unnatural, despite the fact that I like it. And, oh, are they dead on the last page? Would it even matter if they were... Here's the thing. <laughs> this is this is a thing that I'm not getting about these Dawn of X books. Here is one of the things I'm not getting. We're basically told straight away that deaths don't matter anymore, right? I mean, that's we can all agree. We have a resurrection process in place, and we've already seen a whole bunch of dead X-Men brought back to life, right? We've seen this. So why... Why are we still having cliffhangers with dead or almost dead X-Men? I mean, if we're writing to be smarter and to shift the stakes, shouldn't we also be writing smarter cliffhangers? How many books since we started this have ended with mutant deaths? I mean, just the last episode, Apocalypse died. Wolverine and Quentin Quire died a couple episodes before that, and now Chamber and Mondo and maybe the rest of the New Mutants team altogether. If we're really going to change things up, maybe let's go an issue or two without a death cliffhanger, right? Uh, now that said, I am an old-school comics fan, so I'm kind of used to this sort of cliffhanger, and I'm kind of expecting them. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, maybe just a, a thing that is. But uh, I really think, you know, th I think this whole Dawn of X, this Hox Pox Docs run is being looked at as being you know smarter than your average X book. And we're doing these... 
these these death cliffhangers that even before this had no stakes, now they even have less. I don't know why we're relying on them. Uh, let's talk art. Well, duh, Rod Reese remains ridiculous. I just love his work. Such an amazing fit for this book. Just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stuff. Overall, despite a couple of very minor complaints, I absolutely adored this issue. I mean, is it Bizarro Day, an X-Men in Space story that I loved? Hmm. Now, I, I loved it. Can't wait for the next part. But unfortunately, it looks like we're going to have to... I don't want to go back to the farm. I don't want to go back to the farm, but uh, we have to. So next time we do a New Mutants, we're going to be on the damn farm. <laughs> but uh, that's all I got to say about New Mutants number uh, five. And... Uh, Let's hop into the mailbag here before we go. We're going to start with Damien, and this is talking about X-Men number four. He says, As I was listening to you say the U.S. ambassador is, as villain was a safe target, it reminded me of House of X number one. I went searching through that issue and quickly noticed that both Riley Marshall and Ming-Na Wen are from that issue. That means that Magneto didn't really didn't need to notice Riley fiddling with his earpiece, as this was the guy who threatened him with a gun. House of X number one established that both of them were there primarily for their own interests and weren't really interested in representing their nations. I know Hickman is trying to reward close reading, but he should have put on the page that Magneto knows that Riley isn't really representing the U.S. and that Ming-Na isn't really representing China. In House of X number one, Esme says Ming-Na is there for, pharm- for his pharmaceutical company and Riley is an ex-Shield and Sword Black Ops agent. There's some other affiliation, but he's fighting me. I'm sure this is deliberately vague so we can place him in Orcus or Zeno or wherever. Now, you said Ming-Na Wen, which made me, like, flip through the issue. It's like, the, the woman who did the voice for Mulan? <laughs> I thought that's who you were talking about. I tell you, during the uh, mid-90s, she was on this horrible show called The Single Guy. And, uh, well, it was the only reason I watched a horrible show called The Single Guy. A second, this is a great catch. Uh, I assumed Riley was the same dude who was packing heat in the Krakoa tour, but totally forgot the cuckoo mentioning that, you know, about his third unreadable affiliation. Um, I'm guessing he's probably going to be revealed as tied to one of our many composite secret organizations. So I guess we'll stay tuned for that. Uh, Damien continues, I'm completely useless to help with the reading order of the forthcoming issues, as I dropped down to Marauders and X-Men only from about issue 6, and then I gave up on X-Men from around issue 9. I do know from reviews that the Empire series takes place between two issues of X-Men, and apparently that's clearly stated on the next issue box. The X-Men and Fantastic Four book is not edited by the X-Team, but my understanding is that the whole series has to happen before Marauders number 6, although it was mainly published later. Generally speaking, I would stick with release dates. I've got to say that I was impressed with the number fours that X-Men was delayed to allow for Xavier's resurrection. I like that kind of linked storytelling. It makes me it takes me back to when Wolverine would disappear for a couple of months to appear in a limited series. And that is helpful. I won't have to sweat where to place Empire. And, uh, you know, I, I guess we can play X-Men Fantastic Four by ear at the moment, or if I can maybe cram it in before uh, Marauders number six. That's not a bad place for it. Um, at least it's a place for it, because I don't know what's happening. But uh, I still have a few days before i got to actually assign an order. So that's, uh, that, you know, that's something, I guess. Now, I didn't even consider that X-Men was delayed to allow for uh, Professor X's resurrection in X-Force. That's another great catch. And uh, like you, I, I do so miss those days. Uh, even though I actually wasn't around for them, 
when Wolverine would actually disappear from the book because he had his own miniseries adventure going on at the same time. Imagine that, way back when we'd only get like one editor credited and they could actually pinpoint just about every character. Nowadays, we've got you know three or four editors at the very least, and those are the only ones that are credited on every single book, and everything's all over the place. Who knows? Uh, Damien continues, I, I continue to wonder why Lionel Yu is drawing this book. It pretty much plays up all his weaknesses. He should be drawing a book that's all action and explosions, not people eating dinner. My memory is that he gets a story more suited for his skills in a few issues, but I wish they'd give him a more appropriate book for his talents. I definitely agree. You was an awkward pick for a book of this tone. And I mean, I've said it before, and I'm sure I will say it again. I like Yu's work, but I always kind of cringe when I find out he's coming on a book that I'm reading. I can't, I can't explain it. Uh, I like his work. It's maybe just like it better over there. I don't know. Uh, Damien wraps up. My ranking for the issue fours is the same as yours. I know I was highly critical of Excalibur, but it did what it did well, even if I disagreed with it. And yeah, placing Excalibur in the number two slot for the week, it was like one of those situations where, like, say, say we like anthropomorphized all the books here, and we had them stepped up to a line, and then all the other books took two steps backwards. <laughs> You know, I dug it, Excalibur, that is, but, you know, in a stronger month of X-Books, it wouldn't have been anywhere near the top of the pile. You know, it's just that the other books were so lackluster in comparison that Excalibur, you know, won by not crapping the bed as bad as the other books. So, there's that. <laughs> but, uh, thank you so much, Damien. It's always great to hear from you. Um, next, we have uh, a letter from Al Sedano, and he's talking about Powers of X number four. He says, It's been a few days, but I finally had time to get another issue read and episode listened to. Also, my copies of The Dawn of X Volumes 1 and 2 have arrived, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens once we start focusing on the different groups, teams, branches of government. I guess I'll find out in five episodes. And yes, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing your thoughts here, and I'm also, selfishly, very curious about how you're going to receive the ending of Hoxpox here, since you are reading it in a collected edition. Folks might remember that I was more satisfied with the penultimate chapter of Hoxpox than the actual conclusion. I, I was very critical of the, the you know, 12th chapter. I just felt it was uh, anticlimactic, and uh, it, didn't, it didn't do everything I wanted it to do, which, I mean, I shouldn't get mad at it for not being what I wanted it to be, um, but, yeah, I was, I was building it up <laughs> a lot harder in my head. Um, Al continues, but for now, we're still in Hoxpoxville, so some thoughts on this one. First of all, I like the, your idea that X to the zero power doesn't necessarily mean it's actually taking place in year one, but in the era before Hoxpox. So it could be any time up till then, and it makes more sense that way. Yeah, and that was that was just me spitballing. I was trying to make everything, you know, kind of fit in my head. Um, folks who've been listening from the beginning, they might recall how... Like, I was really spinning my wheels there, trying to come up with ways where, like, all of X continuity was still, you know, in continuity. I was really, uh, I was really worried about that. I was worried that, you know, um, different bits and pieces of stories were going to be relegated to, uh, to, you know, Mora Life 2 or Mora Life 3, and maybe the Executioner song happened in Mora's third life. It's, it felt very, 
I don't know, it felt like we had a lot of weird back doors. And from what we're seeing, I, I don't think that we actually, you know, used any of those back doors, thankfully. So I think, uh, as far as I'm looking at it now, and I could be completely wrong, but I think everything happened. So, there's that. Uh, now, Al continues. Bar Sinister. Now, is that all made of ruby, or is it ruby quartz? I remember that Sinister has a particular vulnerability to Cyclops' optic blast, though I don't know if that still counts. And yeah, I feel like this imagery was definitely supposed to evoke thoughts of ruby quartz. Um, either that or ruby slippers, because if I'm remembering right, uh, Bar Sinister did look like a red version of the Emerald City. Which, you know, if those theories about Thunderbird's red shoes hold any water, might make even more sense. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, Al continues. Krakoa as the lawn of the Jean Grey school and Wolverine and the X-Men. I remember that too, but I thought that was the son of Krakoa, though I'm not sure how paternity works for a living island. Was this the first example, retroactively, of a Krakoan seed? And, uh, you know, I'd have to reread Wolverine and the X-Men, or, hell, I'll just look at the wiki. Why not? It looks like the Krakoa of the Jean Grey school was actually the grandson of Krakoa. And it also looks like the last time we saw this Krakoa was in the Marvel Legacy era Generation X, which was something that I dropped like a hot rock. But... I'll probably be hunting them down in the near future. It's the uh, the life of an addict. Um, I do wonder if uh, they will make mention of. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure there's probably a uh, Krakoan gateway by where the Jean Grey school was. So um, uh, this wasn't in Central Park, was it? I know there was a school in Central Park. Maybe it was there. So maybe we'll find out if uh, that Krakoa was a result of a uh, of a seed of some sort. I mean. For all we know, the, the whole planet could be covered with Krakoas before long. That's a, that's definitely interesting to consider. Uh, back to Al, he says, Warlock. I know he was back in the New Mutant series that came out around the time of Ex-Necrotia. No idea what his current status is. Maybe he's bonded to Cypher again. So it's not his arm that's infected, but that's actually Warlock. And I still don't know the answer to this one. Um, I mean... Relatively speaking, Doug's getting a decent amount of panel time, right? I mean, he's the he's the you know liaison between the X Men and Krakoa. He's the translator. He's we're seeing him a lot, and I feel like we know less about him now than ever before. Say for his amount for the amount of time we're seeing him, we're not getting much from him. Uh, Al continues the story about Apocalypse and Krakoa was interesting. The whole thing with the sword makes me wonder if this is going to be set up for X of Swords. I actually, I'm actually a bit interested in that now, if that ends up being the case. And uh, that's just the beginning, because uh, there's going to be a lot more sword in imagery coming. So uh, <laughs> be ready for it. Um, I think that the sword, you know, X of Swords was definitely already in the plans uh, from, from you know, Jump Street, because we're getting a lot of sword imagery. Uh, Al continues, As for your question about how long this will last, I have no idea. But I've accepted that comics, the big two at least, now are no longer the ongoing story of a character or a team. So I'm no longer permanently invested in buying my comics with that in mind. The only exceptions are books from, from my Thanos and War, my Warlock Thanos show and The Legion. I now just buy them when there's a take I like and I enjoy it for as long as it lasts. And that's, uh, that's the very healthy way to look at it. <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the well-adjusted human way to handle it. But uh, I'm anything but... I get too tangled in the scenery, and I get too, uh... I, I, what are the, I think I think maybe butthurt would be the way to put it. <laughs> I get very, very annoyed when, when you know, when things change. Because, I mean, 
comics are in a constant state of change, but yeah, it feels like it feels like everything's being written as uh, as seasons now rather than serials. And I mean that's just a uh, that's just current year comics, I guess. I gotta either deal with it or not. And uh, since I'm still here, I guess I'm dealing with it. Uh, Al wraps up with, uh, hey, feedback. Nice to see I wasn't the only one who thought of Hitchhiker's Guide when it came to the text page. And yeah, a few people have mentioned that. I I have never read Hitchhiker's Guide, so I couldn't say. But uh, yes, there have been a few people who have said that. So uh, Al wraps up with, talk to you after episode nine. So thank you so much for following along. And I, I again, I can't tell you how cool it is to have someone who's still in the Hoxpox era at this point. Because... Uh, it's it's just it's putting me on the other side of the fence. So you're learning all this stuff that I've already sort of learned, and I get to see how you're you know how you're getting it at first blush, just like I did not too long ago. So that's really cool. So thank you so much, and uh, we'll wrap up with a a tweet from Ed Moore, who I'll be uh, actually Ed and Al or our fellows I'm going to be doing projects with in the very near future. So. That's pretty cool. So Ed, he sent a supportive tweet regarding my reviewing process that I discussed a few episodes back when I don't remember their name, but somebody wrote in and asked me to enlighten them to my <laughs> reviewing process, which I took to uh, I took to reason that uh, that maybe I said something that got under their skin. They never replied, so I don't know if that's the case at all. It might have been just someone, maybe somebody wanted me to write something for them. I don't know. But uh, I did talk about my review process, and it's funny, um, because Ed mentioned, like, hey, you know, you do you, it's your thing, you do your thing, and very, very supportive, and I definitely appreciate it. I second-guessed even including that. I I second-guess everything I do, whether it's a show. uh, The the sentence that's coming out of my mouth right now, I'm second-guessing, you know? If it's a show, if it's a blog post, I'm second-guessing everything I do, and it's very, very stressful. So when I recorded that episode where I talked about my reviewing process, I remember being in bed that night, and I was like, I should probably edit that out, because <laughs> it was just, it was a little self-indulgent. It was also, I didn't, I was worried that maybe I was a little snippy. I was worried that maybe I should just let it not, let it be, you know, but, uh, I don't know, this is a, it's kind of a sore subject for me, because I have been taken to task before, and I've been, I've gotten some pretty uh, vicious clapback from, um, from reviews. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of angry appeal to motive, and I, I guess it's, it's easy to fall to appeal to motive when you're, uh, trying to critique a criticism, you know? Uh, case in point, and this is the this is the example I always give. Um, I was reviewing the uh, DC Young Animal book Mother Panic, and I don't know if I've told the story on this show before. I might have, but uh, here we go again. I reviewed it, and uh, the first several issues I did not like it, and uh, I told I told you all that I started a seven. When I have to when I have to rate something between one and ten, I started a seven and I go up or down. And I believe for the first couple of issues of Mother Panic, I just stayed at 7. Because I do also grade on a curve. Because I realize not everything is going to be written for me. And I also know where my biases are. I think if you're going to call yourself a reviewer, you need to know what your biases are. Um, if it's something that I'm knee-jerk not going to like, but I've accepted a job 
in reviewing it, I need to take into account that this is not being written for me. But how would somebody who likes this sort of story take it? So with Mother Panic, it started at 7, and I think I kept it at 7. I might have gone to a, down to a 6.5 or might have even gone up to a 7.5. But we're living in a world where it's 10 out of 10 or nothing. Uh, I have friends who, uh, who've, been, who've been contacted directly by some very prominent comic book writers for, giving, for daring to give them an 8 or a 9 out of 10 instead of a 10 out of 10. It's a, this is a monster we've created, and uh, you know those chickens come home to roost when uh, the creators don't get what they want. So I gave this Mother Panic book a 7, and suddenly I woke up one morning and my website was just bombarded with comments. Got all these new comments. I thought, like, wow, maybe Google finally found me. And, <laughs> and people are telling me, are writing in to tell me how brilliant I am. But no, no, it was uh, some very threatening, uh, very vicious, very uh, expletive-laden uh, messages. I'm guessing it's all from the same one or two people, probably, but calling me every ist in the book because Mother Panic was written by a woman. And it's actually a woman who I like a lot. I like her writing a lot, and I actually came around to Mother Panic as well. But uh, I was called every ist and uh, really got under my skin. I almost just stopped you know, talking about comics altogether. I just, I couldn't take the heat. And uh, it just really bothered me. So I try to be as transparent as possible. If I start to feel like someone's questioning uh, my integrity or honesty, it's just like, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not grading anything. I'm just telling you what I think about it. You know, that's kind of where I fall. (laughs) But, uh, but I definitely appreciate the support. And I apologize if I went on too long. I just, this is one of those sore spots for me. Um, it's definitely something that uh, that I exert way too much energy worrying about. I worry about everything as it is, but I, I certainly worry about that as well. But I think that's where we'll leave it. If uh, anybody would like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. Show notes and the stuff at Chris'sOnInfiniteArts.com, XLaps.Chris'sOnInfiniteArts.com, 90s X-Men on Facebook, that page on Tumblr, the audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. So, I guess that's where we'll leave it today. Next up, X-Force. So looking... I was going to say looking forward to that, but I'm not sure I am. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Uh, one last giant thank you to everyone for still hanging out here. We're about to break into the 40s, which... I mean, sitting at my kitchen island on September 1st, doing writing the notes for the first episode, I never thought... <laughs> We'd be up to 40, so there we are, and I owe so much of that to you guys, so thank you all so, so much. But till we do break into the 40s, I will uh, talk to you again real soon. See ya.